Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So... It's mid-March 2023, and I'm out in the woods in our Sussex village. Just went over a bridge. Now, hopefully you can hear that there are still some crunchy leaves around underfoot. And although they aren't perhaps bright enough to hear, I can see buzzingly yellow daffodils bobbing and dancing in the breeze. As I look around me, I'm struck by how, as I've been out walking in recent weeks, I've noticed how colour has started to rush back into the trees and the hedgerows. Life bursting back in full force. But we are in an in-between time still. A week or so away from the pagan festival of Ostara, the spring equinox. Uh, Our tale today, as you'll shortly hear, is from the county of my birth, Somerset. Not the county where Wordsworth and his sister saw those very famous daffodils, but the ancient land out of which grew the lyrical ballads, that collection of English verse that changed literature forever. Part of what I like about the story I'll be telling today is that it's about lost things coming back. Like wildflowers, it's easy to forget that just because something's buried doesn't mean it's gone. I find comfort in that idea and try to bear in mind that no matter how dark things get, all that darkness really means is soon, perhaps even imperceptibly, maybe just out of the corner of your eye, at any moment the earth will shift and forgotten things will return. They always have and always will. And always will, maybe because they always have. With that thought in mind, gather in close around the three ravens campfire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast. There were three ravens sat on a tree Down a down, hey down a down They were as black as they might be with a down One of them said to his mate Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down 
Hello and welcome to episode two of the Three Ravens podcast. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a storyteller, writer and English romanticism obsessive. I'm joined as ever by my partner in crime and all dark arts, award-winning poet, playwright, Shakespeare scholar and witch, Eleanor Conlon. How are you, Eleanor? I'm very happy. Happy? Pray tell, why so happy? Well, First, because we had such a lovely adventure yesterday to Devil's Dyke and to Stenning. Yes, we did. Although, no gift shop at Devil's Dyke after all, so boo to that. No, no gift shop. Although, I do wonder what they would sell in a gift shop at Devil's Dyke. I feel like clods of of cloven earth that have been hoofed out by uh, the Dark Lord himself... Um, and then probably other devilish assorted goods. Devilish knickknacks, little statuettes of... Uh, yeah, I mean, if there had been some there, I would have bought one. So, yeah. What there was there was a lot of wind. <laughs> yes, there was. Much wind, very blowy. And I think, you know, maybe one day we will untangle your hair. Maybe one day, but that day is not today. <laughs> but actually, I'm mostly very happy because we have had a week of amazing support from everyone since launch our podcast last Monday. Yes, it has been very happy making. We've had well over 100 downloads. Our first goal is to reach 400, so do please share us on. Plus, we've had orders through the online shop at threeravenspodcast.com, and we've had lovely reactions and flurries of people joining our new Facebook group at facebook.com forward slash threeravenspodcast, and following us on Twitter at threeravenspod. We've also had people joining our Instagram at at Three Ravens Podcast. And through all our social media, we've been sharing pictures of what we're up to, places we're visiting, events to celebrate. Um, so you can see some of our windy adventures yesterday yes. in Sussex. And um, there's a picture of Martin enjoying hopper cake night last week. Yes, I ate cake and drank spiced ale, which was hard work, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, particular thank yous have to go to sharers and commenters Sabrina, James, Carol, Ed, Michelle, Barry, Jocasta, at a symbologist xxxx22 and folky flow and most of all to georgia who was the first person to enter the three ravens card design competition yes thank you so much to everyone who's emailed us at three ravens podcast at gmail.com especially georgia and if you're an artist too of any skill level please join in and send us a design for a greetings card we're looking for art inspired by nature and the folk tradition after our first series of 13 episodes, we'll pick our three favourite designs to turn into greetings cards and sell for a 50-50 profit share with the winners through our online shop at 3ravenspodcast.com. So to enter, send your work through to us as a JPEG to 3ravenspodcast at gmail.com. The same place to send feedback or your own folk tales so we can feature them on one of our upcoming listener episodes. So, we're releasing this episode on Monday the 13th of March, the day after St Gregory's Day. Eleanor, is St Gregory a character you're familiar with? I know there was a Pope Gregory. Uh, is it the same person? It is the same person. What do you uh, know about him? Um, Not a huge amount. I mean, I know, I think that if it's the one I'm thinking of, the Pope Gregory was associated with tolerance. Um, he was he was particularly nice to the Jews, I think, at a time when a lot of his equivalents were not. Um, right. I am going to also assume, although I could be totally wrong about this, that he has something to do with Gregorian chants. Right. So St Gregory was super important to the early English church because he was, as you say, Pope Gregory the Great who sent Augustine to England to convert the Anglo-Saxons. I mean, the way I see it, Augustine is the one who deserves most of the credit for that. All St Gregory did, from the sounds of it, is delegate, which is a skill for sure, but not a terribly miraculous one. And that's probably why there's no particular folk traditions associated with St Gregory's Day, apart from it said that it's a lucky thing to do to plant onions on St Gregory's Day. 
if you want a good crop of onions, <sighs> that's what you do. But we didn't plant any onions yesterday, did we? Maybe we should have delegated. Yeah, we definitely should have. Uh, just to say, on St Gregory, he was sainted because, so the story goes, he was blessing the Eucharist for communion when it actually physically transformed into flesh and blood. Wow. Yeah. He was the original. He was. Didn't specify what sort of flesh and blood. I mean, I think we're supposed to presume, but if it was like venison, let's say, and, and you mix in some onions, you've got the basis of a stew going there. Add in a bay leaf, some potatoes, a little root veg. Seeing an ecclesiastical cookbook coming out any time. Side project. (laughs) A happy belated St Gregory's Day for all the delegators and onion planters out there. Now, this week we're talking about Somerset. So are you ready to ring the bell and unleash the county crier, Eleanor? Unleash those county criers. So, Eleanor, when you think about Somerset, what are the things that immediately pop into your mind? Other than sitting in traffic on the A303 bus Stonehenge. Okay, so it's probably time that our listeners found out about me um, that I... I'm a bit of a fan of the works of Thomas Hardy. Oh, gosh, yeah. Is that a fair assertion? Yeah, definitely. Am I a super fan? Um, And, of course, Somerset is an essential part of the Wessex of Thomas Hardy's novels and short stories and a lot of his poetry as well. So my knowledge of the actual Somerset is partly fantastical based on this fantasy kingdom that Hardy created to be adjacent to the real Somerset Dorset. Yeah, so if you aren't familiar with Thomas Hardy's kind of fictional Wessex that he created, I'll whack a map up on uh, Three Ravens podcast.com. And But when you uh, look at what he's done, he's sort of create, created alternate names for all of the towns and villages mm. that he then features in his stories. So it's almost, I, I mean, I think it's a bit of a precursor to the um, Song of Ice and Fire novels of George R. R. Martin, where his Westeros is kind of really adjacent to the United Kingdom and the Anglo-Saxon Heptarchy, which I'm also really interested in. <laughs> um, and Hardy's doing this with, with Wessex as well. And uh, I also think of East Coca, which is uh, one of the poems in T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. And that is a, a little village in Somerset where I think Eliot's ashes are actually interred in the church. Yeah, it's just down the road from where my grandma used to live. Well, there you are. <laughs> so, hands in the air, it's probably worth mentioning that we are both fairly bad at geography generally. Yes. Um, but Somerset is a slightly easier one for us. I mean, me particularly, because I was born there, giving me a home advantage. I mean, it's not great for me because I'm still looking for places in Wessex <laughs> <laughs> and using a, a Thomas Hardy-themed map when you're actually trying to say find the supermarket is yeah. not that helpful <laughs> so for, for those who are less familiar somerset is in the southwest of england with its north coast facing wales and bordering the bristol channel it's bordered by devon dorset gloucestershire and wiltshire as always there's a map showing its location in england on threeravenspodcast.com so I was born at musgrove maternity hospital which is located in somerset's county town Taunton, which has existed for a thousand years, which is pretty good going. Taunton Castle was once an Anglo-Saxon settlement, then a priory, and although it's been heavily reconstructed, it is now the site of the Museum of Somerset, which is well worth a look if you happen to be in the area. Have you ever been to the Museum of Somerset? I haven't, but it's on my list because I think they have some hardy artefacts, which I'd like to see. I think his inkwell is there and uh, a few other bits. I could, uh, Or possibly that's in Dorchester. Well, in Dorchester, they've got all the different pens that he used. Yes, that's it. Books. So perhaps the inkwell's there. <laughs> but there is certainly some hardy stuff in Taunton too. Nice. So so Somerset was part of the ancient kingdom of Wessex, as you've mentioned, one of the oldest governments in recorded history. And the county motto of Somerset is Somersetai Iela, meaning all the people of Somerset. 
Quite, yeah, quite what all Can the we people... do more old English on yeah, the podcast? Maybe. I think, I think we should. <laughs> but I've got to I've got to ask the question. All the people of Somerset what? Or what? All the people of Somerset. Goodness only knows. Yeah, I know, right? It's quite an evocative motto. Mm. All the people of Somerset are sitting in traffic on the A three oh three past Stonehenge. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you wonder what could be that universal. Um not even the love of cheese, for example. Because, you know, some people are going to be vegans. That's true. Although the love of cheese transcends borders, I've always thought. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Anyway, all the people of Somerset. Very evocative. Um, There are plenty of things Somerset's famous for. Not least its rolling hills, including the Mendips, the Quantocks and the Black Downs. And then there's the Somerset Levels, where my family's been farming for over 400 years. So we're pretty embedded in that landscape. Though not as embedded as was maybe Somerset's most famous resident, the Cheddar Man. Oh, is he another chalk marking? Well, no, he's not quite. So Somerset has lots of Paleolithic limestone caves, including Wookie Hole and Goff's Cave and Cheddar Gorge, where the Cheddar Man was found. So it's about 10,000 years ago he was knocking about the Cheddar Man. Pretty wild to think about that. Um, so we, we have this guy, the Ched, Cheddar Man. I mean, one wonders what the traffic was like on the A303 10,000 years ago. Is that why he died? He, he, was, he was stuck just... for such a long time. <laughs> um, now... So is he, is he a preserved body, the yeah. Cheddar Man? Yeah, well, he's oh, the wow. remnant, remnants, of a, remnants of a body. Oh, great. Yeah, he's one, one of the oldest ones that, that certainly at the time had been found in England. Um, but probably... The most famous folk mythology about Somerset swirls around a very famous town associated with magic, martyrdom, prophecy, Englishness, very special swords, ladies in lakes. Once and future king. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's very hard to split Somerset off from King Arthur, really. Uh, When you're talking about legends and folk stories and the hub or or nexus of all that sort of stuff in the area is, of course, the town of Glastonbury. These days, Glastonbury is probably most famous globally because of its amazing music festival, but Glastonbury Abbey is where it's at as far as folky folk like us are concerned. We went there not that long ago, didn't we? We did, and I'm sorry to say, spent way too much money in the fantastic bookshops. I yep. definitely recommend if you're interested in all things witchy. The, and, yeah, I mean, and the Abbey, well, Abbey itself. The Abbey was wonderful as well. And now if you've never been, Glastonbury Abbey is an incredible place. Founded in the 8th century, ruined twice, and for around a millennium, the reported burial site of King Arthur. Now, myths of King Arthur abound, and there's no way I could hope to try and do justice to King Arthur in a podcast episode, so I'm not even going to try. But what I have done for this week is focus on a story that has things in common with King Arthur in a small kind of way, and in common with St. Tibber, actually. Oh, St. Tibber! Yeah, we were talking about St. <laughs> Tibber in episode one. Because, so the story goes, in 1278, Edward I and his queen, Eleanor of Castile, moved the bodies of King Arthur and Guinevere to a black marble tomb, which was subsequently destroyed during Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries. Yeah, I know. Henry VIII. He has a lot to answer for. He really does. (laughs) And slightly earlier, according to the diaries and letters of Georgian archaeologist William Stukeley, St. Tibber's body was removed from its grave by Abbot Elfin, who served King Ethelred the Unready, and taken to what's now Peterborough Cathedral. Yes, that's right. Tibber's body was moved, and so were her cousins. Um, so Tibber had a number of cousins who were also abbesses, some of whom were sainted, and their bodies were all moved. Yeah. So today's tale is set in Withycombe, a village northwest of Taunton, just a few miles from the coast and slightly east from Porlock, that town where Coleridge famously wrote his poem Kubla Khan, A Vision in a Dream, Uh-oh. a fragment. Here we go. In Xanadu yes. did Kubla Khan. <laughs> Thank you, no? Martin. Oh, okay. Can we have the story? <laughs> yeah, okay. So this week's story is about a witch called Joan Khan, and I'll start spinning my yarn 
right after this. Somerset is a county rich with witch stories. There are dozens. So many it can be hard to choose whose story to tell. For example, there's Marianne Bull, who people knew as Nan, a healer and wise woman who roamed West Somerset in a wagon during the 19th century. It's said Nan Bull sold goods from her cart, which was also her home, venturing as far as wool in Dorset to hawk her cures and curses. That was until the townsfolk of Crewkern turned against her. Like so many witches, she was buried at a crossroads in a spot now known as Bull's Grave. Then there's Mother Shipton. Born in 1472 in Knaresborough, she lived and died in Porlock and was famous for knowing when storms were coming, essentially in a fishing community. It's said Mother Shipton could forecast the tides and predict squalls with such regularity that she didn't so much read the weather as control it. Of all the witches of Somerset, though, perhaps the most interesting is the story of Joan Kahn, the restless witch of Sandhill. She died in 1612, famous for having murdered her three husbands. The truth of her story is a little more complex, though, as is so often the way. Born in Dunster, just a short walk from Minehead, Joan seemed to spring from nowhere. A great beauty, the first record of her existence was her marriage to John Newton. The Newton family had owned Sandhill Farm since 1427, and Sandhill Manor Farm stands on the same spot to this day. In 2023, Sandhill Manor sits in 250 acres of wood and farmland. It has its own freshwater spring, manicured gardens with an ornamental lake, stables, and over a hundred horses. You can rent part of it as a holiday home. But back in the time of Queen Elizabeth I, the house and its grounds were more modest, even if their owner, John Newton, was in the prime of his life. The day John met Joan, the unmarried lord, was out riding. A perennial bachelor, he prided himself on his work. He'd grown his father's estate, turning it from a run-down, if beloved, semi-wilderness into a profitable, tidy, happy farm. That afternoon, though, as John ventured through his thriving empire, he caught sight of a shape scrumping apples from his orchard. He only caught a glimpse of her, a face through the trees and a swish of skirts. Then, the next thing he knew, she was gone, vanished from sight. John rode up to the walls of the orchard, dismounted, searched desperately between the trees with his heart in his throat. The only traces of life he could see, besides the trees and insects, his horse and himself, was a pale brown hare running off into a nearby copse. As the days wore on, John could not put the vision of the woman from his mind. He couldn't eat, couldn't sleep, and would talk of little else. Her face, her shape, that flash of skirt haunted him. So it was that John Newton pursued Joan, not the other way around. As days turned into weeks, John made more and more inquiries. He rode west to Old Cleve, north to Cleve Bay, and east to Carhampton, the nearest village which sits beneath the shadow of Bat's Castle. Everywhere he went, he described the woman he'd seen. Though some faces flashed with recognition, nobody wanted to tell the young landowner anything about the person he was seeking. The best he got was a nod in the direction of Rod Hewish Common, a wilderness surrounding the ruins of an Iron Age hill fort. So, 
That was the way John Newton rode, scouring the hills of the common, combing through them day after day. The people of Sandhill started to fear for the health of their patron. Little did they expect John to one day ride home with Joan on the back of his horse, lured by a promise to make her his wife. All this time, you see, Joan had been living in a hovel out in the wilds, nestled in a space between two scrubby hills. When John Newton rode down into Joan's glade, she had fear in her eyes and thought once again to flee. Yet Joan recognised the man and, being a decent sort, offered him a little payment for the apples she'd stolen from his orchard. When he refused her paltry collection of coins, she thought that would be that. But instead, John asked her for a different form of payment. His price? No more than a conversation. It was during this chat that John learned of Joan's sad history. How once, when she was barely more than a girl, she'd met a man from Blackdown who told her He'd stolen a golden mug from a fairy fair, after which the fairies had caught up with him and exacted their revenge. The man had been tricked, bewitched, and became pixie-led, unable to think for himself. The traveller told Joan that he'd been led from town to town by the malevolent elfin folk. They'd spat in his eyes, giving him pixie sight, helping him to see the world as they saw it. Then, for years, they kept him with them, using him to carry their goods from forest to vale to beach and back again. The only way he'd escaped, the man told Joan, was one day he'd put his coat on backwards, sleeves the wrong way out. It had only been an accident, he said, but the moment it happened, he felt himself freed. So he ran off and escaped to live the rest of his life in leisure. The way Joan told it, ever since that day, the man she met had enjoyed great luck. He could win at dice, dance the finest of jigs to any old tune, and, with just a look, any girl would fall in love with him. Which was just what happened to Joan, who the man led off on a merry jaunt that lasted through spring, summer, and until the leaves started to turn. As the seasons passed, Joan said, and her love blossomed and bloomed, she convinced the man to show her the world as he could see it. So it was that he spat in Joan's right eye, and from that day forth, Joan could half see the world of the fairies and their pixie mischiefs. Their footsteps in the dew, their language in the spider webs, the future written in an apple cut clean through. Joan and her swain lived a life of mirth in those days. But as the west wind turned and winter came knocking, Joan came forth with news. She was pregnant, she told her lover, no doubt about it, and wasn't that a wonderful thing? Alas, in response to Joan's admission, the swain did what swains are wont to do, albeit with a twist. For not content with just running away, the man turned himself into a hare, shooting off into the undergrowth, and Joan didn't know how to follow him. Times were hard then for Joan, for although she could see part of the hidden world, had hedge wisdom and might earn herself coppers for telling fortunes, she didn't have the luck her lover had boasted. Before long, she found herself all but penniless. Moreover, when the baby came, she found her son proved not to be a normal sort of child. He was a half Fay baby, or a part fay at very least. Everything Joan tried to feed him only made him sick, and the harder she worked to heal him, the sicker the boy became. It was then that one night there was a rap at Joan's door. She opened it, her heart swelling with hope that her errant lover had returned. Instead, it was the fairies come to take her son to live a secret life as their kind always ought. 
Joan refused, of course, but the fairies wouldn't take no for an answer. They spat in her face and forced their way inside, gathering the boy up in his swaddling clothes. Joan had known what to do. Quick as a flash, she turned her skirts inside out, freeing herself from being pixie-led. But it was still too late, for out of the windows, up the chimneys, the fairies vanished, spiriting her son away. And their curse was twofold, for, although, like her lover before her, she'd now accrued new knowledge and could turn herself into a hare when panicked and had luck at dice and could dance the finest of jigs to any old tune, it seemed that, from then on, whatever good thing she touched, she tainted, marking it with fairy charms. John Newton listened to this story and felt for Joan, loved and stolen from and left alone. Moreover, like most important people, he did not believe in curses. So, despite Joan's warnings and after much begging and pleading, he convinced her to make him the happiest man in the world by marrying him and becoming his wife. Trouble was, just as sure as eggs is eggs, it didn't take long before John Newton fell ill. Like a true lady of her time, it was only after the wedding bells rang that Joan agreed to offer John a first embrace, but even that first kiss, sweet as it was, was laced with poison. Joan begged John not to, but he wouldn't hear otherwise, and morning, noon and night, he kissed his wife. He had her cook his meals and prepare him medicines, yet everything she made for him only made him sicker. She pleaded with him to call on others to help, a doctor from Taunton perhaps, and beseeched him to visit the priests at Exeter or Glastonbury, but John wouldn't hear of it. He only wanted to stay home at Sand Hill with Joan, his one true love, for there he might die happy. Which is what he did, of course. And people were sad. Not least John's workers, who were suddenly afraid, for John had died without issue, meaning their futures had all become abruptly uncertain. Most afraid was Joan, of course, who in a short time had grown to love Sandhill just as she had loved the man who'd made it a success. Indeed, with Joan's fairy sight, she could sometimes still see John Newton wandering the house by night. Though she went to the funeral and put his body in the ground, she knew in her heart that while John might be dead, he wasn't really gone. It was at that very funeral, though, that Joan was seen by all the great and good of Somerset. Many of them had heard of John Newton's sudden wedding, and curious to meet his widow, all the major families attended, the Hickses, the Hastings, the Clarks, the Poppums, and notably, the Wyndhams. Indeed, all the men who caught sight of Joan seemed to covet her. Most of those men at John Newton's funeral, well, they were already husbands. One who was not, and who fell in love no sooner than he'd seen the hem of Joan's mourning clothes, was Charles Wyndham, heir to Orchard Manor in Watchet. The kindly John Popham, who inherited Sand Hill, was sufficiently enamoured with Joan that he agreed to give the conveyance in fee to the estate to whoever the pretty widow married next. And though Joan begged and pleaded with Charles, warning him off as she'd warned off John, telling him of her past and imploring him to leave her be, Charles Wyndham wouldn't hear of it. He married her. Though in jealousy towards John Newton's ghost, he knocked down the old farmhouse and commissioned a new, grander building to be erected in its place. Joan was bereft at the destruction of the old Sandhill farmhouse, mourning John Newton's loss all over again. 
And although Charles Wyndham was a jealous man who took her away from the home she'd only just come to feel she belonged in, he loved and craved and showered Joan with kindnesses, just as her first husband had. Just like him too, in spite of Joan's begging and pleading, Charles sought her kisses morning, noon and night, made her cook his meals, pour his wine, and when Charles fell ill, he had Joan prepare his medicines. Duly, she sat by his bedside at Orchard Manor and watched him as he wasted away, powerless to convince him to seek succour from anyone but... None of this was lost on the great and good of Somerset, of course. The Hickses, the Hastings, the Clarks, and even the Pophams spoke whisperingly of Joan, of her great beauty, of her bewitching powers, and of her strangely intoxicating influence. The rumours spread through court, a little tittle-tattle to most, but for Sir Edward Khan of Ueni in South Wales, the talk of Joan made him prick up his ears. For Sir Edward, you see, was a widower. Not only was he a widower, in fact, but his first wife, mother of his son and heir, John Carne, had once been Catherine Wyndham, Charles's sister. And Sir Edward was a tricky character. His father had been Queen Mary's ambassador in Rome. His entire family had refused to convert to Protestantism. In 1574, Edward had even allied himself with Mary, Queen of Scots, and he and his men had led several frays into neighbouring Welsh lands, rebelling and seeking to enforce feudal rights. In short, Edward Kahn was not the sort of man who believed in curses, but he did believe in money. He knew that if Charles Wyndham died, as all who knew him supposed he would, then by marrying Joan he could secure increased wealth, power and a grander title even than Sheriff of Glamorgan. Alas for Charles Wyndham, of course, who never got to see Sandhill Manor completed. He died happily, though, shortly before the final bricks were laid in 1588, with his will of 1585 specifying that Joan should be able to live in the house until her death, after which the estate should pass to his godson. Joan, of course, was heartbroken all over again. Alone again, grief-stricken, given an unfamiliar house in a familiar place where the ghosts of her past husbands seemed to shimmer and shake in and out of existence. She wondered if somehow she might untangle the mystery of their afterlives and thought to perhaps appeal to the fairy folk for aid. Before she had much time to follow up on such plans, though, Edward came calling and refused to take no for an answer. So it was that before long, Joan Newton, who had become Joan Wyndham, became Joan Kahn. Though Sir Edward considered himself cannier than his precedents, he listened to Joan's words, took them to heart, and after moving Joan to Ueni, he at first managed to keep his life and hers almost completely separate. Yet, like Charles before him and John before that, and try as he might, Edward could not keep Joan from his thoughts. He dreamed of her, glimpsed her reflection in every puddle, mirror and window pane. As weeks turned into months and months turned into years, he at first craved sight of her, then to brush her lips against his and suddenly Sir Edward Kahn was just as infatuated with his Joan as her two prior husbands had been. He could not bear to be parted from her, hung on her every word, and soon demanded that only Joan prepare his meals, only Joan pour his wine, and, as he became more and more ill, that only Joan tend to his sickness. 
Edward Kahn's will, dated 20th of October 1602, was proved on the 27th of May 1603, and Joan returned to Sandhill Manor, where she lived until her death in 1612. It's said that in the final years of her life, Joan Kahn became a recluse. She covered herself from head to toe in black cloth, fearful of letting anyone see her, though many still came seeking prophecies and advice. Often the auguries Joan gave her visitors were not what they wanted to hear, and by the time she died, the people of Widdicombe were most pleased to learn she passed on. Indeed, by then they had come to fear her, creating a special iron coffin in which to bury her, barring it to the ground deep in Watchet churchyard. One of the things the people of Widdicombe wanted to know, though, was how much money Joan was leaving behind, and to whom. The great and the good were just as curious as the folk who'd worked Sandhill Farm during John Newton's heyday. So, one and all, a crowd of inquisitive mourners travelled back to Sandhill Manor House to hear the will being read. It was of great surprise to all in attendance when they opened the doors to the grand Elizabethan house to find within it none other than Joan Kahn. She was in the kitchen, dressed in black, cooking eggs and bacon, presumably enough to share with her three dead husbands. The priest was sent for, exorcising Joan's ghost, which, true to form, turned into a hare and made an escape. What followed was a scramble, a hunt across hill and vale, with Joan's spirit eventually driven to a body of water known to this day as the witch's pool. It's said that the priest, whose name is lost to antiquity, sealed Joan there by blessing the pool, turning it to holy water. It's also said that Joan Kahn's ghost can only return to Sandhill by one cockerel's stride a year. Measurements of the precise distance between Withicombe's witch pool and Sandhill Manor House vary somewhat, but by most estimates, it's imagined that Joan Kahn, the restless witch of Sandhill, ought to be home by now. Judging by the additional exorcisms that took place at the manor during the last century, there's every chance she's already there. So, Eleanor, Joan Kahn, the restless witch of Sandhill. What are your first thoughts after that? Well, they can't say she didn't warn them. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, isn't it? Joan was fully conscious of what had happened to her and the effect that she was going to have, but the her various husbands just couldn't take no for an answer. No, indeed, and, that, and that's often the way with a very beautiful woman, isn't it? <laughs> I'm also interested in uh, the malevolence of the fairy folk hovering at the fringes of that story. But there's just this sense that humans shouldn't be seeing the world of the fairies and if they do, there will be rewards, but there will also be terrible consequences. Yeah, definitely. And within a lot of Somerset folktales, the fairy fair is this movable adventure that kind of shifts around from town to town. Sometimes it's in woods, sometimes it's in valleys. But the idea is if you go there, it's dangerous. You, mm. you may just disappear from your family and, and never return. Is that where Christina Rossetti got the inspiration for Goblin Market, do you think? Well, one has to presume there's connections. And if you don't know Goblin Market, then it is a, a poem about a similar concept to a fairy fair. It's just goblins in her version of the tale. Selling some very delicious fruit. Very delicious fruit. Now, first off, I have to say, as soon as I started reading about witch stories from Somerset, I fell, like Alice, down a rabbit hole, or, or should I say... A hair hole. A hair hole well, for Joan Kahn. <laughs> I mean, technically, uh, where a hair lives is called a form rather than a hair hole. It's a bit, bit of trivia 
for you there, but there were loads I couldn't make space for in this podcast. There's the Wookiee Hole Witch, there's Elizabeth Style of Wincanton, Jane Brooks of Chard, Mary Hunt of Ilminster, and the Ghost of the Witch of the Black Smock Inn at Stave. I could have gone on and on and on. It is like fairy country. It is witch country down there. And I find it kind of amazing that there's all of these records of mm. all of these women. Where are those records found? So, I mean, there's lots and lots of diverse sources, but often in court records. Right, of course. Because a lot of these women were tried. Yes. Um, in the case of uh, Joan Kahn, it's it's the wills and deeds of these husbands. Mm. You know, she, she's in them, which is very, very interesting when you're dealing with people who are landed who, or who own uh, property. Now, for those of you who are interested in a bit more witchy action, uh, if you join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast then i have included a bonus story there the tale of mother leaky which i just didn't have time to fit into this main podcast episode still for three dollars a month that's the kind of additional value you'll be getting from the three ravens patreon is a mother leaky a, a witch who's good at plumbing she isn't she is good at terrorizing people um, it's more of a scary kind of ghost story than uh, than Joan Kahn is. Oh, uh, nice! Yeah, did you like Sounds the chilling? Did you like the in- inclusion of a bit of ghosty action though in, in the Absolutely. story? Absolutely, and uh, uh, although it was quite heartwarming to think that Joan was making some eggs and bacon for her ghost husband, <laughs> yes, yeah, so, very thoughtful. So the frying of eggs and bacon in her kitchen after her funeral is very well recorded. Like that is in the record. I've embellished Joan's story a little bit, integrating a few different folktale ideas from Somerset into her story. In particular, the use of apples to tell fortunes, which I think is really cool. Um, The idea of the fairy fair we've already talked about. And the whole notion of fairies spitting in people's eyes to give them pixie sight. I mean, that concept is really fun and creepy to me. Yes, and there's also, um, it doesn't originate from Somerset, but there's also the idea of the hagstone, isn't there? Yes. Uh, Which is a a stone with a hole in it. And if you hold it up to your eye, you're meant to be able to see things beyond the common sight. That's right. So if you go to the seaside, keep your eyes peeled for, for a stone that has been washed in such a way and eroded that it has developed a natural hole in it. The idea is that is a hagstone. And if you look through it, then you can see a hidden world. One also wonders, though, what that hidden world would look like. Well, know? they're also meant to be good luck. So if you string one up over your doorway on the entrance to your home, it, it's actually a, a protection charm. Um, I also think that this story is supercharged by the number three. Bit of a bit of a cheat code when it comes to writing stories. <laughs> but, you know, Joan has three husbands with the Three Ravens podcast. But the number is super important in folklore, along with the number seven, of course. I mean, why do you think that is, Eleanor? I mean, I think it must also have something to do with Christianity, early ideas of the Trinity. I think in in fortune telling, you've got past, present and future, of course. Um, A basic tarot spread is a three-card draw, which refers to those ideas. Um, The the number three is... uh, it, I th- I'm sure that it has some root in numerology as well. well I have to do a bit more reading about that. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely something about the disruption of binary opposites. It's not just yes or no or light and dark or mm. good and evil. You know, Christianity, as you say, obviously reverberates with the Trinity. Yes, you say you've got the past, the present and the future. You've also got like the female triptych of maiden, mother and crone. Yes, you've got, the triple goddess that's in it. Wicca. You, you've got the Greek fates and in numerology and tarot, as you say, it's the number of creation. Ah. Um, one and two are the parents. Three is the child. Mm, that's very interesting. So uh, anyway, as I mentioned, Sandhill Manor Farm, still there. Uh, you can book. To stay there, oh. if you like. Um, <laughs> built by Charles Wyndham. Um, you can likewise visit Orchard Wyndham House and its gardens in Watchit, which is privately owned. And all round those parts, there's loads to see, including lots of castles and Iron Age hill forts. Throw a stone and you'll probably hit something interesting in that neck of the woods. Would you be up for going to stay at Sandhill Farm, Martin? 
Yeah, of course I would. Although I'm curious, if you're going to rent out half of your farmhouse, presumably the other half's got the ghosts in. Well, one would hope. Alternately, you live in the unhaunted half and uh, let the Airbnb guests take their chances. Yeah, fair enough. I, I was actually really delighted by that aspect of the story, uh, that the, the length of time it's taken Joan's ghost to get back from the witch's pool to Sandhill Farm has been measured. Yes. I mean, who measured it? <laughs> well, who, who's doing this? Yeah, quite right. Great service. We thank you. But... <laughs> People are worried, though. You know, it's the idea of, oh, no, yeah. she's going to be back soon. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to keep it top of the list for our holiday plans. But, uh... <laughs> so, Eleanor, where are we headed to next week? Next week, we are headed off to Cornwall. Ah, yes, I knew we were going there soon. So it's next week, Grockles and Tin Mines. Gotta love Cornwall. Yes, and we will be listening to A Tale of the Sea and its mysterious creatures. Ooh. In the meanwhile, if you would like bonus content, including exclusive episodes, our monthly Three Ravens newsletter containing a rundown of the month's English folk customs, a magic spell for the month, text versions of our stories, and every main and bonus episode of the podcast advert-free, then please consider joining our Patreon for just $3 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast. You can also check out our website at www.3ravenspodcast.com where we host our archive of all our past episodes. And of course, there's our online shop for t-shirts and other Three Ravens goodies. If you have your own folktale that you would like us to feature on the podcast, then do write it up and email it to us at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com and we'll feature it in one of our upcoming listener episodes. To send us your thoughts, uh, then please email us at the same address, threeravenspodcast at gmail.com. Until next time then, while our story's gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle until you're out of the woods. Thanks and credit go to the History of Parliament website, the Withycombe Parish History Group, and Kingsley Palmer's excellent book, The Folklore of Somerset, as published in 1976, all of which were essential during my research for this episode. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad, Three Ravens, performed by Ben Harbour and Eleanor Conlon, and our logo was designed by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman, such hounds, such hawks, and such lean men, with a down, derry, derry, derry.